one of the reasons I love listening to your show is, and this podcast is because you're always talking about the foundational work around API design, around API governance. If you don't have that, it's going to be a pretty shaky um, road ahead when you start wanting to automate documentation. If you don't have a specification, how can you make sure that your documentation is complete and accurate? Um, that's You've got to start there before you ever get to SDKs. I'm Jason Harmon, and this is API Intersection, where you'll get insights from experienced API practitioners to learn best practices on things like API design, governance, identity auth, versioning, and more. Welcome back to API Intersection. As always, I'm your host, Jason Harmon, CTO at Stoplight. And a um, little something different today. That's the thing I always end up saying, but uh, seems to always be true. Um, we talk a lot about like building APIs, consuming APIs, and uh, you know how to document it, all this stuff. And I, I think it's interesting that we haven't done a whole lot in the last couple of years we've had the show on SDKs. And uh, I'm super stoked. Uh, old friend uh, Sid Maestre has joined us today from API-Matic, and we're definitely going to talk SDKs. So thanks for joining, Sid. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what y'all do. Sure. Thanks for having me, Jason. And uh, I'm a longtime listener, so uh, I'm, I'm excited to join the podcast today. Yeah, uh, right now I am the VP of Developer Relations over at API-Matic, where we are focused on helping API providers and the acceleration of consumption of their APIs through SDKs. And we've got a lot of uh, machinery behind that to help you generate your code libraries um, and associated documentation and code samples in, I'm happy to say, seven languages now. We just added support for Golang, which uh, has been on the rise. And so we're really, yeah, excited to, to have that out there and customers using it now. Yeah, I guess uh, full disclosure, for many years, I helped advise API-Matic until I started at Stoplight. And, you know, it seemed like we're kind of had some competitive factors, so I saw my way out. But uh, definitely ha still have a piece of my heart in API-Matic and love the work y'all do. Uh, I had my eyes opened when I worked at PayPal as to what it takes to build, you know, a many language set uh, of SDKs and and, and kind of the, 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 the heavy lift to it. So... I guess from your perspective, and it's, this has been what, like uh, less than a year you've been at API-Matic, like what have you kind of learned so far in seeing some of the struggles that companies have gone through in trying to do these things before coming to API-Matic? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say we, we get different types of companies approaching us. Some of them are fast growing and they've hit that point where their customers are really demanding a better developer experience and they believe SDKs are a key part of that. But we also get companies that come to us who are, I don't want to say drowning, but they're overwhelmed with the ongoing maintenance of their SDK program. And this could be um, that they've handwritten all of them and so they have to have uh, several engineers who are skilled in multiple languages, or they've got a hybrid approach where maybe they've used some 
a little bit of code generation, a little bit of hand crafting, and it's all sort of, you know, bespoke internal machinery that they have to keep running. And, you know, as teams shift and people come and go, it, it becomes harder and harder to keep that maintenance. And so they they look at API-matic as an extension of their engineering team. And because all we do is eat and sleep SDKs and all the language, the evolution of all the languages, when security patches are happening, um, we're always uh, keeping an eye on those things and keeping the machine running for our customers so that when they feed us their open API definition, because it's changed for some reason, uh, we're able to generate updated docs, updated uh, SDKs. And another cool new feature we just added is the ability to auto-publish them to package managers. So instead of you having to handle that piece, now we're taking care of that for the engineering teams and uh, the companies that we're working with. Nice. So there's, uh, and you kind of mentioned something in there that's implicit in this whole idea that... um, you can generate an SDK, which, you know, in, in theory is just making it easier to go use an API, but that, uh, a prerequisite is that you're, you have some sort of specification format to feed that. So like we talk a lot about how, you know, your documentation process can be smoother. You know, there's all this different tooling we kind of hand wave at sometimes, but this is one that um, seems like kind of there's a, a, a program maturity level that folks get to where this becomes relevant to accelerate things. But if you didn't have all the spec stuff in place, this sort of thing wouldn't be possible, right? Yeah. In fact, one of the reasons I love listening to your show is, and this podcast is because you're always talking about the foundational work around API design, around API governance. If you don't have that, it's going to be a pretty shaky um, road ahead when you start wanting to automate documentation. If you don't have a specification, how can you make sure that your documentation is complete and accurate? Um, that's You've got to start there before you ever get to SDKs. And, uh, and then when you decide you start to see the signals, right? Your community starts releasing their own uh, handwritten libraries on GitHub and your customers are coming to you asking for support on these community libraries. And then you're sort of faced with this lack of control, but clear signal that developers want this. And you're thinking, okay, now it's time to move into SDKs. What you need to do on those specifications is actually another level of specificity. For example, what you name your operation ID is maybe like, I mean, it's important for readability in your docs, right? But if you throw in some special characters and try to generate a class uh, in your code base, uh, you're probably going to run into some problems. And so part of API Matic's product is a pretty heavy validation layer that catches a lot of this and helps the uh, guide the customers to you know improve their API definitions so it's uh, up to scratch for the purpose that's interesting it's, it's definitely something I don't think we've talked about a lot in uh, open API so operation in this case is sort of you know your combination of path and verb so like you know get slash addresses or whatever it is 
um, that you can specify uh, an arbitrary identifier for each of those. And it's definitely one of those things that like out of the box, few people notice or do much about, but uh, that's a very interesting point that you're effectively deriving like what the method names are going to be in that SDK from those operation IDs. So I yeah. guess in some ways you're doing your programmatic naming convention in your uh, abstract uh, design, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know who said it, but uh, naming variables is one of the biggest challenges in programming sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and I think naming your operation IDs, being really thoughtful about that is important because when you give a code library as part of an SDK to a developer and they NPM install it, they're going to expect that their IDE will have some code hinting, some autocomplete. And if you haven't been thoughtful about your naming, it might force a developer to jump back to your documentation just to understand what the different methods names actually do for them. And it kind of breaks the flow for a lot of developers. And that's what we're trying to avoid, I think, when we provide good code libraries. Yeah. So one of the things I've seen over the years um, in you know trying to use spec formats to generate things rather than have hand curated messes everywhere mm -hmm. uh, is the, the code generators, when you go look at this stuff, quite often, you know, let's say you do it in three different languages and you look and it's like, oh, this Java code looks like a JavaScript coder wrote it, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. And I, I find that like a lot of generated code stuff out there that most devs look at it and go, ew, like, I don't want this in our code base. Uh, yeah. So is that like a thing that y'all see? Yeah, um, definitely. It, I, it's one of the things I call out to avoid is giving a Python developer a code sample that looks like it's written for a Java developer, that's a really bad pattern that you want to avoid. And so we use the term uh, idiomatic quite a lot. Uh, I had to go look it up just to make sure that I had the definition right. You thought there was but, like like idioms, like jokes about API you, so you didn't know or something? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I... I went and I uh, looked it up and I said, oh yeah, this kind of squares with what I'm thinking, which is following the the styles and the customs and the patterns that are familiar to that language or to that developer community. And in fact, this past year, because uh, API-Matic's been around for six or seven years, and so we're, we're actually reaching the stage where we're going back and revisiting decisions made four or five years ago and saying, hey, has the language shifted? Are there things that we can do better? And so we've actually did a whole revamp on many of the languages we support to make them more idiomatic and to be up to the latest standards that developers expect. If you're doing that yourself in-house, again, like that's just one more task that you have to put in the backlog to make sure that you're staying on top of. And, and interestingly, if you open source your SDKs, Developers are great about letting you know that something could be improved. And uh, when I did it in-house at another company, uh, I definitely had PHP developers educating me on the style or the, the way to actually structure methods so that they could use it more efficiently or in, in the more modern way. So that's part of the, the journey, I think, if you go on this. 
Yeah, I mean, to that point, it's that was another like eye opener for me in the, the PayPal environment was seeing, you know, trying to support what typically is like six to eight languages that, you know, you need for kind of broad coverage. Like just hiring a team to do that is weird because you really mm-hmm. need like six to eight specialists who are good at each of those languages and the crossover of their work is odd. And uh, so it's like, I think that's, that seemed to be one of the pains of maintaining something like that is it's really hard to build a cohesive team around what's essentially a collection of languages and specialists, right? Yeah. And, and you're actually dealing with a collection of individuals on your team who have sometimes really strong opinions about how to approach the code base they're working on and what functionality is more important than other functionality. And uh, again, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm pitching API-matic too much, but um, something we often share with our customers is that you're getting a unified philosophy around all the languages because you've got one large team at API-matic that share uh, a general direction that we take all of our SDKs. So in, in that way, it's it's very uh, holistic. And yet we also have settings that you can, little switches that you can flip that you can actually customize the ultimate output to better meet the needs of your API and, and your company. So there's this kind of blend of, let's have a, 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 a unified philosophy on SDKs, but let's also add some capability to customize the the ultimate result. Yeah, I've seen some of those ideological stalemates before, so I'm familiar with what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, an interesting aspect of this, though, is that like in many SDKs, uh, well, let's say that there's there's uh, levels of maturity in SDKs, uh, and that at the base it's like take the spec and generate something that calls it, and it's really just giving you the convenience of access to models uh, that you don't have to go sort of you know replicate from some docs somewhere or generate otherwise, and then you're basic like call auth semantics, but then. As things kind of mature up, you know, uh, an example from like the PayPal days was a lot of like security and compliance related stuff that could, you know, for instance, help um, improve your acceptance rates on transactions was actually the carrot in a lot of ways for folks to use the SDK. It's like if you don't use the SDK, you call the API straight, you're probably going to have high credit card rejection rates. If you use the SDK, it's sort of gathering other telemetry that's going to make those transaction rates uh, approve at a higher rate. Um, so, you know, do you see this sort of value add in the SDK that goes beyond the generated aspect and um, where that might sort of like, how do you see that in terms of limitations on code gen and it's, you know, how it, uh, how it expands out? Yeah. Yeah. I think that we don't have a really great, resource to think beyond generating those models and getting methods to make those API calls. And that was actually a project that I worked on earlier this year is 
I've created, uh, or API Maddox created a site called SDKs.io. And we've tried to gather best practices. And we even have um, some research around what other companies are doing with their SDK programs. And from my own personal experience, I kind of started, you start small. And that's actually my first code generation project was to take an existing Java SDK that we had at zero. And it, we had XML, don't don't hate. And uh, we had finally added full JSON support. And so we had XSD schemas and for marshalling and unmarshalling your XML, you probably lived through that, Jason. And I said, I want to add models here that are fully you know, JSON uh, and for, for parsing, uh, serializing and deserializing. And so I took that opportunity to be my first step into code generation. And so I just generated the models and made those available to the developer community and gathered feedback. And that was really what gave me confidence that code generation had finally reached a level of maturity that we could move forward with really doing the full projects, uh, the full SDKs using code generation. And we started expanding into other languages, but then we also started learning what other things developers expected, like they wanted to have logging. And I added some logging and then they said, wait a second, your Java SDK, I don't want to use your logger. I want a facade logging mechanism so I can inject my own. I said, okay, let's do that. Uh, And then there was questions about being able to customize the timeout. Okay, let's let's add that functionality. Um, oh, you don't have any S, you don't have any documentation on specifically your your Node SDK. Well, I I expect that. So okay, let's figure out how we can generate some docs. So we just kept kind of building and building. And when I joined API Matic, I was really happy to see that they were they had covered all those bases and then had kind of gone beyond that. Um, having things like um, tr- um, retries. So if there was a transient network error, you could actually configure your SDK to, to retry. Um, a big area that we see is error handling. So can you actually serve back a more readable and uh, usable error and make sure it's surfaced properly to the developer through the SDK. So those are all the things that I had to kind of struggle through on my own, but then I, I'm happy to see that API Maddox done a lot of that. So it goes beyond just the models and and the methods. It's a lot of infrastructure around it to make it a really robust experience. And test coverage, I mean, I could kind of keep going, but yeah, there's so many additional layers that you want to have around your core of your SDK, I think. Yeah, I think that's actually, it was, that was a great collection of some of the, like, uh, the non-obvious things out of the gate, uh, <laughs> that you run into, which is funny. Cause like I was, uh, recently we put together a class for, uh, API sec university on API documentation and, um, you know, going through that process and thinking, okay, what are we going to share with folks that's valuable is like, for instance, the most likely thing that a developer interacts with in your API first is an error. So you should oh, yeah. like put a lot of effort on that, right? Yeah. And SDKs is just as true, except you're translating it through some generated code. So, and it's a real challenge if you haven't looked at that before. Yeah, I think, well, 
I haven't experienced every single API out there, but I really appreciate it when the people who designed and built the APIs gave as much attention and thought to those errors and how they're going to be returned and the messaging around them as they give to the actual 200s and the payloads they return through that. Yeah. Um, as I guess meta documentation here, like we usually talk about, you know, all the things you need to do to document your API, but you just mentioned that documenting how to use the SDK, which in turn uses the API is kind of its own thing. So like what's different or what are maybe some pointers on what's important about documenting an SDK that's different than, you know, providing a code sample style reference material and how to call the API straight over HTTP? Well, I think when we approach creating an HTTP reference or API reference or whatever term we want to use. You can say rest. I won't throw anything at you. I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> I just, <laughs> this is for our listeners. Uh, we call it, we call it, it's the same thing. We call it, we have different labels for it, but I think that's intentionally language agnostic, right? And they're going to explain authentication in a very, technical and detailed way. How do we set these headers? How do we encode and encrypt these API keys? Or how do we implement OAuth, three-legged OAuth, right? They're going to have all those steps. And what I think is unique in SDK documentation is it's not about teaching you how to do things the rest way. It's showing you how to do it in the Ruby way or the Python way. And it's very familiar because all the code samples in your getting started guide are going to be Python as opposed to here's how you're supposed to set this header and add this additional, you know, tenant ID because we need to identify something. And every, uh, every API has some unique, well, not everyone, but a lot of them have very unique requirements and they, they're all stand, they're all following a standard, but there's a lot of opportunity for uniqueness and developers going from one API to the next can get, you know, tripped up and spin their wheels a little bit. And I think the SDKs help them avoid that by simplifying any complexity that might exist in your API, whether it's pagination or the authentication layer or how parameters are supposed to be constructed. Yeah, the uh, the old adage I always use is if you're putting on a two day hackathon, auth is day one. <laughs> <laughs> if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, like, um, but it's a good point that like I guess maybe the reason, and, and you mentioned some of the signals that might come externally on why you need an SDK, but I guess from just a more explicit outcomes, if you're evaluating if this is the thing you want to do that sort of, you know, time to first hello world kind of thing is what we all look at, right? Like how long does it take to make a successful call? And in a lot of ways, the the primary, like right out of the gate, first value people are going to get is that they don't have to understand the auth stuff quite as much. Not it's as essentially, deeply. where do I configure the key and then go and it does the thing, right? Yeah. And, and even better if the company can provide a starter app on GitHub that a developer mm. can clone and let's set my environment variables and get my keys set up and let's make that first API call. And for me, having the SDK also means that what I'm learning is I'm learning how to use your API in a way that I would 
ultimately build my production level integration with. When I'm just sort of experimenting uh, with an HTTP client and I'm just sort of seeing, can I get a 200 response from this? Now I have to figure out all the, everything we've just been talking about in this call, you know, was how do I deserialize this into a model and how do I handle errors that are coming back? And so um, I think it's, you know, REST documentation is great for learning, but there's still a lot of code that needs to be written to get to production. Uh, yeah, I guess another facet of all this is like, there's APIs everywhere now, right? Uh, certainly, you know, from all the survey stuff, everybody's building an API. Everybody thinks they're building a platform now. Um, and, <laughs> they are. And I, they are, yeah, it's, it's wild. Um, so I think it's like on one side, I think we all kind of understand that like SDKs in your very public facing things with very large scale can be a necessity. Um, but you know, there's internal APIs, there's more closed door partner things like where, uh, do you feel like you see that these are appropriate choices beyond, you know, we're not all working at Stripe and Twilio and running, you know, millions of integrations. So yeah. is there some sense of scale or some other kind of criteria that, you know, when you're talking to folks, uh, seems to signal that it makes sense to think about, uh, using SDKs. Yeah. An example I like to use to illustrate where I was, uh, I was like where a company didn't really need an SDK that I was um, working with. Uh, this company had a very small partner program and there we're talking in maybe a dozen really key partnerships that they wanted to enable through their APIs. And then the APIs were available to their customers, but to be honest, their customers were probably going to go the low-code, no-code route with those APIs. And when I showed up and looked at their docs and looked at the little code snippets they had, I said, you know, this seems like probably enough for their ambition at this point. I wouldn't even recommend SDKs for this company because it just didn't seem right. Um, but then I've also seen companies that are growing startups that have uh, not a whole lot of endpoints, but actually had SDKs because they were dealing with um, posting multi, um, posting like binary files and, and uploading PDFs and uploading uh, different data through their API. And as someone who's actually implemented that uh, in an SDK, um, yeah, that was tough. That I don't know why it was so hard, but going from some languages were easier than others, but um, some of the complexity where you would upload it and it would say it was a success and then you'd go to look at the image and it was broken uh, in the UI. So I think there's complexity in your API. It's not a matter of how many endpoints you have. Um, you might have deeply nested objects that are hard to work with. Those can all be reasons. Um, but like I mentioned, there were signals that I tend to pick up on in a community, like you're getting lots of questions in the forums and in your support queues about those basics, those, how do I, how do I auth? I keep getting a 403, um, or I want to use your API to do X. How do I do that in PHP? Like you'll get these questions start to bubble up and the more and more you see, the more and more you probably want to start listening to those signals. And as you mentioned, we have a lot more APIs than we did 10 years ago, and it feels like it's a much more competitive environment. 
And so when you look at the other APIs that you're comp potentially competing against in your space, developers are doing that quick evaluation. And personally, when I show up at an API, one of the first things I do is I start digging around looking for a library that is in a language that I'm familiar with, because I know if I reach the point of wanting to drop into an IDE, I find that helps me get familiar and find success and make that first API call. So there's a, a competitive angle to this as well that I think companies are thinking about. There's a lot of payment companies going against Stripe and uh, SDKs are front and center from their getting started guides to uh, their use case guides and their API reference docs all have code snippets that are um, basically accessing their SDK program. Yeah, that actually triggers another memory for me, which I think is a good example of an extreme of this. Um, after PayPal had acquired Braintree, I worked with that team for a while. Yeah. And it was just an SDK. It was just SDKs. There wasn't actually like a publicly documented API uh, mm. for quite a long time because the mindset was like, this is the fast competitive way to sort of, you know, um, match up well. I guess, are, do you know of examples like that of folks that are just doing an SDK and like putting the API on the back burner in terms of explaining it, you know, uh, documenting it externally? I don't think I've ever seen that extreme where they wouldn't document the API. To me, that feels like the first step. But I did have an interesting chat with uh, someone at LaunchDarkly, and they've got, last time I looked, 27 client and server-side SDKs. And when I was chatting with him, he said that they actively discourage developers from using their APIs directly because they've added so many little additional features inside of their SDKs, like caching of rule sets and things like that, that while a developer could write their own, his philosophy was, well, why would you if we're maintaining and providing these SDKs in all these different platforms and languages, uh, because feature flags are often used the front end, the back end, in mobile. So like you're talking all these different environments, you don't want to write, you don't want to have to write the code in three different places if you don't have to. Yeah, for sure. Although I guess in probably, and I think that was to some extent the, the story at Braintree at the time as well, was that there was a lot of sort of, you know, dancing magic around that call. It wasn't just making the straight call that you really wanted to have there. Um, and explaining that wasn't worth it versus just provide it. But I guess in both of those scenarios where you have so much customization beyond just what is in the reference documentation for the API, you're probably in hand curated territory anyways, right? Like CodeGen is yeah. probably not going to quite do it for you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm curious, you have to finish your story. Did you eventually get those uh, REST docs for Braintree created? Oh, there was a whole thing. And uh, I, <laughs> I, I, I think truth be told, being polite and discreet, uh, you know, they were like a lot of other fast growing startups where like the API evolved over time. And to some extent it was that the underlying APIs weren't like the most sexy thing. Uh, so there was certainly movements afoot to sort of provide a, 
a better API experience that would be publicly documented as opposed to kind of the older, muckier stuff that was underneath those SDKs. So I think, you know, there was a little more to it probably, but um, yeah, I'm not sure where all that landed after I went on my merry way. Yeah, it, it sounds like what you're referring to is a pattern you probably want to avoid, which is papering over poor API design through your SDKs. So, you know, kind of hand wavy, don't look at our API, just use our SDK because there's some funkiness that we haven't prioritized fixing in the actual API itself. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was definitely some element of that there. And and you're right. It's probably not a good idea, but it's an interesting one that if you end up in a situation where you have something that works perfectly well, but maybe it's not that attractive, putting SDKs out there may make it look a lot more attractive and you can hide that stuff. But I would certainly argue that um, it's probably entrenching the problem worse and not making it easier to move on from it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. At, uh, at zero, we had our original accounting APIs had used this sort of odd Microsoft JSON format date, which was basically an Epic wrapped in this forward slash backslash date. And so our developers would struggle with that. So when we started uh, building the RSDKs, we purposely added uh, little helper methods that would translate that into a native date um, type for the developers. So it would seamlessly translate back and forth for them into this odd string format. And maybe we were relieving the pressure on the API team to address that. But all the future new APIs were done with proper date formats. So we we had to sort of address it in one situation, but we were fine in the other. Yeah, I'm uh, painfully familiar with that kind of subject. And for listeners, the right answer is RFC 3339. That's all you need, right? Just plain old basic dates. It's amazing, it does the job. Store it, store your date in universal time and produce it at the client's context that they prefer. Uh, I have a very old blog post called the five laws of API dates and times. I think that is still the most read thing I've ever written by far on this subject. And it was basically the output of my personal trauma at work of trying to fix a whole system that had done it wrong. And the longer I've been around, the longer I've seen how often people do it wrong. So there's my PSA on dates. <laughs> I, I love it. Your uh, your content is informed by your personal trauma. I think that's a common pattern with us. Oh, yeah. No, that's the only reason I started writing and doing speaking and all that stuff anyways, is I didn't want to have to talk about the past things that I did to figure out the right answer. So just write down what felt like the right answer at the time. And then when yeah. people ask, go read that, because I don't want to think about how I got to that. <laughs> All the mistakes I made. (laughs) Well, uh, Sid, any other uh, sort of words of wisdom for folks who are, you know, thinking about SDKs, uh, you know, beyond um, selling your own product, uh, you know, um, you know, any just kind of thoughts on folks things can do maybe now if they're not ready for SDKs that would set them up for success when it is time? Yeah, I think... I'm gonna I'm gonna re- re- refer folks over to that SDKs.io site to be honest because I think that's where I um, 
I uh, documented my trauma uh, at, at times. Uh, there's actually, I injected a lot of personal anecdotes about how did I do things wrong and don't do it this way for this reason. So I think that's actually a really good starting point because we start with like, not just what is an SDK, but why do developers appreciate having them and sort of the pros and cons of handcrafting versus code generation. So I think it's a pretty good resource. I think going into it with your eyes open that this is a long-term investment is really important. There's nothing sadder than you know, GitHubs that are gathering dust with SDKs, with pull requests and issues that have sat there open and with no response, not even we'll look into this, but like no response for months and months. It's uh, it's sort of um, deflating for developers to see that. That probably does more harm than good to do a one shot at SDKs, right? Exactly. And uh, you want to keep them secure. You want to keep them patched. You want to, you know, it's, it's, uh, and they, and developers want to be part of that process. And so making sure you have, you communicate your roadmap around them through your GitHub repo is also really helpful in, in fostering that community engagement around them, I think is critical for, for success. And I, and I suppose you implicitly gave another piece of advice there is it's going to be open source. Don't plan on anything else. I, I'm trying to figure out when it's a, when it can't be open source because <laughs> I, I find it funny when I have to create an, uh, I have to create an account or put in a special request just to see your API documentation. That's probably my, one of my biggest pet peeves. So I, I can't, I'm going to continue on that trend, which is what what is your secret sauce inside this SDK that they couldn't just download the package and try to dig into it? Uh, I mean, maybe there is. Maybe there's some security mechanisms that you need to keep safe. But I would say for the vast majority, the benefits of open sourcing your code libraries is going to outweigh um, any downside uh, as far as the people you need to put on to man these requests and to respond to issues and review PRs if you're taking PRs. Um, yeah. Would you mind if I gave my little podcast a plug on your podcast? I was just going to ask uh, folks that want to hear more about SDKs and, uh, you know, kind of what you're working on, where do they go? Uh, I think I'm already super stoked on this uh, SDKs.io thing I hadn't heard of. That's a cool resource, but where do folks go to find out more from you? Yeah, so I have my own podcast called The Art of Developer Experience, and I started noticing all these folks' titles on LinkedIn started to include developer experience, and it kind of got me thinking, yes, there's internal developer experience, but we're also adopting that with our public-facing APIs and developer programs, and I thought, why don't I start pulling these people in and interviewing them about the work they're doing. And sometimes it's SDKs, sometimes it's just tools in general. Uh, had a great chat with uh, Richard Moot from Square, who told me all about API governance at Block and how they approach deprecation and versioning. So definitely some crossover with what you've been talking about, Jason. Uh, so if folks can go and give that a listen and like and subscribe. Very cool. There you go. You got another podcast to add to your list. And uh, I think there's probably a good chance you'll see me over there pretty soon, too. (laughs) Awesome. 
great catching up, Sid, and uh, thanks for sharing with the community. Thank you so much, Jason. I appreciate it. Had a great time. Thanks for listening. If you have a question you want to ask, look in the description of whichever platform you're viewing or listening on, and there should be a link there so you can go submit a question, and we'll do our best to find out the right answer for you.